Good morning. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 this morning. We're going to pray and jump right in. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What a great theme to talk about living from the inside out and the topic of faithfulness. The key to faithfulness is living by faith. And that's what we're going to look at in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hear then the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight And the sin that so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Father, with our Bibles now open before us, We know that apart from your son, Jesus, we can do nothing. I can't teach or preach with any effectiveness. Christians can't listen with any growth. Non-Christians cannot open their hearts to the word without your help. And so, Lord Jesus, we're asking you to come now and help us by your spirit's power to exalt the name of Christ and to build faith and faithfulness into our lives as Christians. And that those who are not in Christ would trust in Christ today and even begin to live a life of faithfulness, either from the sermon or from the conversations that ripple out from here. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not a Christian, you might not be a Christian because there are a lot of hypocrites who call themselves Christians. Every religion has hypocrites, of course. But it seems that the most fervent Christians are often the most condemning, exclusive, and intolerant. The church has a history. We don't just have to speak about individual Christians. The church has a history of injustices, of destroying cultures, of oppression. And there are so many people who are not Christian or not religious even at all who appear to be much more kind, much more caring, and indeed moral than so many Christians. If Christianity is the true religion, then why can this be? How can this be? Why would so much oppression have been carried out over the centuries in the name of Jesus Christ and with the support of the church? That's a serious obstacle, right? It's a serious obstacle to faith and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Now, as I begin this morning, let me give you three brief responses by Tim Keller, who wrote the book, The Reason for God, and um, he basically says this, the, the solution to this problem of hypocrisy in the church is not less Christianity, but deeper Christianity. So three, three responses here. Number one, first of all, if you're not a Christian, let me say to you on behalf of all Christians that we are sorry for our hypocrisy. We don't have excuses. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against our neighbors. We have not lived as we have known in the Bible. And we are guilty. And so the first response is, we're sorry. We want you to point those things out to us that we might repent and go to God for more grace. 
The second thing to say is that, you know, you might critique Christianity for being a religion that can't be true because it's too moralistic and maybe too legalistic or too wagging the finger, don't do this, don't do that, even though there's hypocrisy in there. But you know what? Uh, Marx and Nietzsche, who critique religion, they even used the Bible to critique Christianity. They used the ideas of the prophets. So despite the abuses of the church and of Christianity, perhaps the greatest tools for critiquing Christianity comes from Christianity. Because who hates hypocrites more than you? God does. Who hates hypocrisy more than you? God does. And who knows of the hypocrisy more than you do? God does. And so God critiques this. And one more thing, on before you junk Christianity because of the hypocrisy and lack of faithfulness, now, Martin Luther King Jr., we could have all kinds of theological disagreements with him, but he critiqued the church because the white church in the South were abusing their, their social power and using it as an excuse to be racist. And so instead of Martin Luther King Jr. didn't say, junk the Bible, junk Christianity, and stop being racist. Instead, he called the church and called his white brothers and sisters to a deeper Christianity, a truer Christianity. And so, yes, there's hypocrisy in our lives. Yes, there's hypocrisy in the church. Yes, there's hypocrisy in the history of the church. And yet the answer is not to reject Jesus. The answer is to go deeper in Jesus. And so from this passage in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, a key to your faithfulness, if you're going to live a faithful Christian life, when people are looking and when people are not looking, we have to understand the message of this passage. And it comes in three words, okay? Three words for this message today, drop, run, and focus. If you're going to live a faithful life, you need to drop, you need to run, and you need to focus. This is not an earthquake drill or a fire drill. This is, you know, just straight here from the text three things, and you see them right here in the text. Drop what? Look at verse 1, Hebrews 12, 1. Let us lay aside every what? You guys have Bibles? Let us lay aside every what? Weight and what? And sin. So there's two things to drop. Drop every weight and drop every sin. Now the image of this passage is the image of running a race. Not a hundred meter dash, but a marathon, a 26 mile lifetime running the race of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when you run a marathon, you need to drop the weight. It doesn't make sense. It might not be against the rules, but it doesn't make sense to enter into a marathon wearing shorts and then sweats over your shorts and then a backpack with two water bottles filled with water when there's water all along the path a flashlight in your hand, a helmet, and a baseball bat on your other hand as you run a 26-mile marathon. That makes no sense. It might not be against the rules, but it's stupid, right? What should you do? You drop the things that you don't need. Every weight that holds you back from running at full speed the marathon of the Christian life of faith and faithfulness requires you to drop every weight. Now it says drop every weight and the what? Look at the text. Drop every weight and the sin, right? So in other words, the weight is not necessarily a sin. See, here's the key to your Christian life. If you're going to live a faithful life, you don't, need just, you don't just need to fight sin. 
You need to drop everything that holds you back from running full speed in trusting and living for Jesus Christ. These weights can be things that are not necessarily sin, but they become a sin to you because they hold you back when God is telling you to drop them. It could be television, it could be internet surfing on your phone, it could be a friendship, it could be a marriage, it could even be the church, it could even be Bible reading. You know Bible reading can become a weight? I'm not against Bible reading as a pastor, but you could read the Bible so much and never apply it and just go deeper in understanding the Bible and quote unquote theology without applying it and guess what? You're slowing down your race. Faith without works is, is dead, right? That's a dead faith. We have no interest in dead faith of just growing in knowledge. If you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you deceive yourself. If you're going to be faithful, you need to not just drop sin in your life, but wait. So I want you to ask yourself right now, because I don't know you, but you know you to some degree. We think we're the world's expert on ourselves. We're actually not, but we still know ourselves to some degree. And so I just want you to think right now, what is the weight in your life? What are the weights that are not a sin? There's no Bible verse that says don't do it, but it's holding you back and it's slowing you down from running full speed for Jesus Christ. So not only drop the weight, but also drop the sin. Now, if this is a race of faith, what is the sin that stops a race of faith? Unbelief or doubt, right? If it's a race of believing Jesus, then the the, the sin, look at verse 1, the sin that so easily ensnares us or entangles us. What tangles us up? Sin, not believing in God's promises. So when you see sin in your life, don't just confess your sin. Confess the sin underneath the sin. Have you ever heard that before? Don't just confess the sin. Confess the sin underneath the sin because the sin underneath the sin is the sin of unbelief. You are not believing God when you commit a specific sin. And when you don't believe God, it's not just that you're unbelieving or doubting God. It's actually an alternate belief. It's an alternate belief. And so examine your heart and figure out not just why you're sinning, but what you're believing about God. For example, and I'll come back to this example a little bit later. Let's, let's take pornography, for example. Let's say you're struggling with the temptation towards pornography. When you give in to that temptation to indulge in pornography, pornography visually, mentally, and maybe even physically, it's not just that you're doubting that God is good. You're believing that that will satisfy your soul, or at least your body in the moment. It's not just a doubt of God. It's an alternate belief about who God really is and who your God is really going to be, what the true treasure of your life is in that moment. Every moment is a test of faithfulness because every moment is a test of faith. And if you don't drop the weight and the sin of unbelief under your sins, if you don't identify those sins and drop them, you will not be able to live faithfully. You'll just be able to live fakely, which is what hypocrisy is, right? You only live a certain way because there's certain people in the room. And when they're not in the room, you don't have to live that way. It's not faithfulness. It's fakery. Hypocrisy. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking, you know what, PJ, I do a pretty good job at dropping weight and sin in my life. I don't need to be a Christian to drop the weight and sin in my life. Well, if that's where you're at, let me just say to you, you might misunderstand what the essence of sin and unbelief is. Hebrews 11.6 says this, now without faith, it is impossible to please God because the one who believes must believe that he exists 
that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So faith in God and dropping unbelief means not only believing that God exists, but that God rewards you, that God is the rewarder. And you know what's underneath every single sin? The thought that God is not a reward, he's a penalty. You ever feel that way? Right? There's some verses in the Bible you just wish weren't in the Bible. And there's sometimes you just wish God could turn his back just for a little bit and give you a little bit of space. That is a real feeling that all of us feel. That's not a, that's not a, a mark against God's greatness. That's a mark of our sinfulness and our distorted, confused outlook on life. And so if you're going to drop the sin of unbelief, you have to believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek you. Now, you might say as a non-Christian, you know what? I know I can't break the power of sin. Maybe I could break the power of this sin of pornography, but then I'll go into the sin of selfishness with my friends. Or maybe I could drop that sin, but then I'll go into the sin of lying and, and puffing myself up so that people can see me as someone that I'm really not. If you know that you can't break the power of, the sin, of sin in your life, guess what? You're on the right track because we can't break the power of sin on our own strength. And if you feel that powerlessness, friend, God is working in you. You need to feel that powerlessness. And you need to not run from that powerlessness. You need to actually embrace it and just say, God, I can't do this. I need your strength. And that's what we just sang about, the power of God. So that's the first word, drop. Drop the weight in sin. What's the second word? Drop, what's the second word? Just want to make sure someone's awake. Run, right? Drop, run, focus. Drop, run, focus. Now, what does it say in verse 1? How are we supposed to run? Look at verse 1. Let us run with what? With endurance, the race that lies before us. Notice the command is not to walk, but to run. This is just like the Apostle Paul who says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. I discipline my body. I run to win the prize. We need to run and not walk. This is a call to win. This is a call for people to be winners and not losers. And it's not physical running. It's the race of faith. Now, I want you to think about this analogy of this race. Think of a 26-mile track, a straightaway. Now, here's why you have to run and not walk. Imagine this track that's 26 miles long, but it's a long treadmill at the same time. So there's a, there's a tread that's going backwards. If you're running on this track and you start to walk or you stand still, guess what's happening to you? You're going what? Backwards, right? You're going backwards. You can't just stand still. And that's how the Christian life is. That's how life is. You just drift in your life with time. Guess where you drift towards? Not righteousness, but evil. So if you don't run the race and you just stand still, you go backwards. If you just walk, you make no progress. You stay in the same place. And so the command is not to walk. The command is not to chill and just, you know, lollygag on the track. The call is to run or you'll be stagnant and even worse, you'll go backwards. Now, I told you that this is a race of faith. And if you're looking in your Bible and you're being a careful Bible reader, you might say, PJ, it doesn't say faith in the passage. You just made that up and you add it to the Bible. It says run the race. It doesn't say run the race of faith. You're right. It doesn't. But look at verse 1 at the beginning. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of what? Witnesses. And what are they doing? They're surrounding us, right? 
Yeah, you gotta, you, they're, they're surrounding us. What, what are the cloud of witnesses? If you go back to Hebrews 11, guess what? You see the cloud of witnesses. By faith, God made the world. Or by faith, Adam lived life. By faith, Abraham lived life. By the faith, Abel lived a, a, a godly life. By faith, Noah lived and, and, and went through the flood. By faith, Isaac was sacrificed. By faith, Moses gave up the riches of Egypt. By faith, by faith, by faith. What are all these witnesses saying? Live by faith. And then when it says run, what are you running? It's the race of faith. So let's go back to Hebrews 11 for a second here. And let's think about what it actually means to live by faith. Look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. There's three things we got to believe if we're going to live a life of faith, which leads to a life of faithfulness. Number one, look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. Now do you hope for things in the future or you hope for things in the past? Say that again. Do you hope for things in the future or things in the past? Future, right? Hope is future-oriented. And when you read through Hebrews 11, what are they hoping for? They are hoping for the new heavens and the new earth. A life with no more tears, no more cancer, no more locks on your door, no more lying, no more isolation from people, no more people crowding your space, no more sin and selfishness in your life, in the lives of those around you, no more decay, a perfect body in a perfect new earth with God's full blazing presence everywhere and you love it to be so. You don't want to run from his presence. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That's the city that is to come. And that's what people who live in Christ hope for. They hope for the reality that they cannot see, but it's right there. And so we're running a race of faith, believing in Jesus, going towards heaven. That's the first thing to believe. But the second thing to believe in running this race of faith is in Hebrews eleven six. I already quoted it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists. So the second thing you have to believe is that God actually exists. Right? You can't run the race of faith if you don't believe he exists. And then third, that he rewards those who seek him. And this last part, believing that God rewards those who seek him, is the key to living by faith practically in your life. If you don't believe God will reward you, guess, guess who you won't be seeking? God, right? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611, God is the strength of our lives. My heart and flesh may, may fail. Whom, or what does the psalmist say in Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the portion of my life. God is our treasure. But we don't always believe that. Actually, in the moment of temptation and sin, you're actually at a fork in the road. Will you believe that God is your treasure? And that he, reward, he rewards you for seeking him? Or will you believe that the reward is in your girlfriend? Or your boyfriend? Or straight A's, even if it means lying and cheating? Or a good job? Where is your treasure? Where you, wherever you believe the reward is, guess what? You're going there. You're all pirates, right? Seeking the treasure. And you're going in that direction. You can't not do it. It just, the, the only difference is what you're believing in that moment. If you're believing God is the rewarder, you'll run to him. If you believe that something else is the reward, you'll run to him. And so let me give you two examples here from this, this passage. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 17. We have, we have a story here, a very interesting and powerful story of Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac 
And he received the promises and he was offering his unique son, the one it had been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be even able to raise someone from the dead. And as an illustration, he received him back. Do you guys know the story of Isaac and Abraham? In case you don't know the story, here's the story. Abraham was an old dude. I mean like an old, old dude, like 75 years old. God promises that he's going to go to another land and that he's going to have offspring. And all these nations are going to be coming from his body and he's going to be blessed. So you're going to have this offspring and you're going to have this great inheritance. Great. So so God says, Abraham, leave your country and go to another place. So Abraham goes. And then Abraham's getting older and he's like, dude, I'm getting old. My wife is getting old. We can't have kids. God, just take my main servant, Eliezer. He's a good dude. He's practically like a son to me. Let him be the heir. And God says, nope, this heir is coming from your body. Genesis 15. Okay, heir is coming from my body. Abraham goes back home, tells his wife, Sarah, Sarah, guess what? It's not going to be our servant. It's not going to be L. We got to actually go to somebody else. Um, and so Sarah says, well, what did God say? Well, God said that the heir is going to come from my body. And so Sarah said, wait, say that again. The heir is going to come from my body. Your body, not, not mine, but yours. Well, he said from my body, I got an idea. Take my servant Hagar, sleep with her. And then you could have a child and God fulfills his promise. This is what we've been waiting for. And Abraham being maybe wise or foolish, you could judge how you want, but Abraham listens to his wife, ends up getting the servant girl pregnant, Hagar. They have the son, and guess what God says? He's not the one. What? This is my son, my body. Nope, it's going to come from you and Sarah. Well, it would have been nice if you had told me earlier, but that's what it is. Okay, so, well, Abraham, you should have known what marriage is anyways. So now they got a son, but he's not the one. Now Abraham is, eight, uh, is, is bordering 100 years old. He's 99 years old at this point, okay? He's 99. Ishmael's probably 15 or something like that. And um, then, then uh, at 99 years old, his wife is 89 years old, and God says, next year your wife is going to have a son. A 90-year-old is going to have a son. And so she gets pregnant she laughs first, and that's why they call the son Isaac, that his name means laughter. So she gets pregnant. The next year, they have the son. Isaac is born. Here's the heir. They waited their whole lives for this son. They've been married for a long time, 100 years old, 90 years old. Finally, they got the son of promise, and God said, this is the son. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. And then the craziest thing happens about 13 or 15 years later. God wakes up Abraham in the middle of the night and says, Abraham, wake up. I want you to go kill your son. I want you to go sacrifice him to me as an offering. And the craziest thing happens in Genesis 22. Abraham says, okay. And you can't see his face, but it's almost like a hypnosis comes over him. And he just seems like a machine. He's like, I will kill my son. I will kill my son. He wakes up his son the next morning, gets the the knife ready, gets the wood pack, gets the ropes, gets his servants. They go travel. They say, dad, where's the sacrifice? Hey, don't worry, son. God's going to provide. It's you. But he didn't tell his son that, right? Because his son is 15 years old and he's 115. He's not going to win that one. So they get up to the mountain, Mount Moriah. There they are. He lays his son on the altar with no hesitation. This dude raises the knife and he's about to kill his son. And you're thinking... What's, get, what's gotten into Abraham? This guy is crazy. 
This is his son of promise. He was begging God that Ishmael would be the one, and God said no. He loved his son Ishmael so much. How much more does he love Isaac? And yet God tells him to kill his son, and no hesitation, this dude is ready to strike. He's so ready, an angel has to say, stop. And he stops Abraham. And then God tells him, now I know you want to kill him. And now I know you love me. Take him off the altar. A ram is caught in the thicket. They kill the ram, sacrifice it to God. Game over, God provides. Now, what just happened there? Why was Abraham so bent on doing this? Here's why. Abraham was so bent on doing this because what did God say? Through who, through whom will your offspring be named? Through whom? Isaac. And guess who, guess who gave Isaac to, to Abraham? God did. When his wife was how old? 90 years old. If God could make my 90-year-old wife give birth, I can kill this boy right now and guess who could raise him from the dead? God, whose problem is it to raise Isaac and make the offspring go through him? Is that my problem as a 115-year-old man? That ain't my problem. Whose problem is that? That's your problem. You want me to kill him? I'll do it right now. Because you're the one who has to fulfill the promise, right? Guess what we call that? Faith. Faith. I believe your promise. You said you'll do it through my son. I'll do whatever you want me to do because I believe you. And when you trust in God, you'll be faithful to God. When you believe his words, you'll do whatever he says, even when it doesn't make sense to you. And let's be honest, sometimes the Bible doesn't make sense to us. But he tells us to do it anyways. Because he's faithful. And if we trust his words, we will be faithful as well. Let me give you one more story of faithfulness uh, in, in terms of just faith from Genesis. Genesis 39, you know the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his 10 older brothers. He had a one younger brother. His 10 older brothers sell him into slavery. This dude is a slave for years. He rises up the ranks in the house of a governor, of a leader in Egypt. And this governor is so negligent of the home, perhaps he's not home, that the dude's wife wants to sleep with Joseph. Now imagine you've been sold into slavery. If you ever feel self-pity, Joseph could feel self-pity, right? I mean, he's away from home. He's a slave somewhere, unjustly. And now you just can't catch any breaks in your life. And now a woman wants to sleep with you. And, and she wants to do this. She wants to do it in a, in a sneaky way where no one can see. If, you're, if there's a time to be unfaithful, guess when that time is? It's right now, right? Finally a break. Finally someone notices me. But no. What does Joseph say? How can, your, your, your husband's given me all this stuff. How can I do this thing and sin against, not your husband, but who? Against God. God is the rewarder. This is not my reward. If I do this and believe that this is my reward, not only will I be unfaithful, I'll make shipwreck of my life. You see, faith is very practical. Every fork in your road, today you will have forks in your road. And the question will be, do you believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him? Or do you believe that it's going to come from yourself? That's, that's the issue. That's the issue. So, so feed your faith. Faith comes by what? Hearing the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. So read your Bible. Pray. But don't just read your Bible and pray. Here's what you need to do when you read your Bible exercise any and every bit of willpower you have to obey God. Do you want to do any good things for God's glory today? If you do, guess where that want to comes from? 
It says in Philippians 2, verse 13, God is working in you both to want to and to accomplish his good pleasure. Any desire you have to do good, guess where it comes from? Guess who it comes from? God. And the way you're going to grow in faith is by not just reading your Bible, but when you have a desire for good, you actually do it and not, not just desire it, but actually act on it. Now, John Piper wrote this article that I want to share. Um, just want to summarize for you because I think it gets at the heart of faithfulness and the task that was assigned to me. John Piper wrote this article called When the Want To and the Ought To Don't Match. Have you ever felt that? When the want to and the ought to don't match? Yeah? Where you know you need to do the right thing, but you don't feel like doing it? And your heart doesn't match what you know is the right thing to do? What do you do in that situation? John Piper gives five alternatives. I can only remember four, so I'll tell you four. Okay? First thing you could do is force yourself to do the good thing anyways because it's the right thing to do. So do it. Just muster up your willpower. Yeah, you don't feel it inside, but do it anyways. Guess what we call that? Hypocrisy, right? It's not real. It's not coming from the inside. That's option one. I don't recommend that one. Option two. Option two is, well, if you don't feel like doing it, then guess what? Don't, don't do it because it's not real. Why, why do it? It's not real. So let's, let's, let's go back to that pornography illustration of temptation. Here you are, you're tempted to look at pornography on your phone or online or something like that. Or, so, so there's a temptation, right? You don't feel like enjoying God's purity right now, right? You don't feel the glory of God's holiness right now. You want stimulation and pleasure physically and even emotionally perhaps. And so you want it. But you know that God says, Jesus says, that don't only not commit adultery, but every, every man who looks at a woman with lustful intent commits adultery where? In his what? In his heart. But let's be honest, Lord, I already feel it here. Might as well do it. Because that's, that's, the want to is there, I might as well just do what I want. That's one wrong option. The other option is, well, I'm just going to fight this sin even though I don't feel like it. That's the other bad option. What's the good option? What are good options? Here's two good options. And I say do both of these. Number one, if you want to not be a hypocrite, here's what you do. You repent for the internal sin and you do the external action. That's not hypocrisy when you confess the sin, right? God loves a cheerful what? Giver. You guys know that verse? God loves a cheerful giver. Imagine the offering plate going around in the church. You don't feel like giving cheerfully. From the heart. God doesn't just want your money. He wants your heart. He wants you to be giving cheerfully. So here you are. You're a cheerful giver. But you're saying, God, I'm not a cheerful giver. God, would you please forgive me for not having a heart that's cheerful right now? And as this offering plate comes, I'm going to give anyways because money is not my treasure. You're my treasure. And my heart doesn't feel happy right now because things are tight. But I'm going to give because I trust you. Please forgive me for a heart that's not cheerful. Is that hypocrisy? No, that's honesty. That's honesty on the inside going to the outside, right? So repent from your internal sinful heart and do the right thing anyways. That's only one thing, though. There's a second part to it, though. Not only should you repent for the internal, here's the second thing you should do. Pray that God would restore the internal desire as you do the external action. Pray. So here comes the offering plate again. God, forgive me for not having a cheerful heart. 
As I give, I'm not just asking that you forgive me of my sins through Jesus Christ. I'm asking that you would fill my heart with the greatness of who you are, that, I actually, that you restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You restore unto me the cheerfulness of holiness and purity that I don't only want to just throw my phone across the room, I want to do it with gladness. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You get that on the inside, guess where that's going to flow? To the what? To the outside, right? And that's where faithfulness comes from. It doesn't come from gritting your teeth and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and just doing the right thing because you know that's the Christian or biblical thing to do. It comes from a heart of repentance and faith that God will reward you as you diligently seek him. And he might not give it to you right away, but he will eventually. I got two minutes here. Let me close with these two thoughts before I... I'm just close with the word focus, but let me close with one more thought here from, um, to non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, you might think this. PJ, this is exactly why I don't want to be a Christian. You just nailed it right there, PJ. I don't want to be a Christian because that means that the Bible and the church and other Christians dictate what I must believe, what I must feel, and what I must do. Christians aren't encouraged to make their own moral decisions. They're cookie cut and placed. They have a... a a, a pattern placed on them and they're forced into it. This is a fiercely pluralistic society with all kinds of religions and all kinds of options and all kinds of personalities and all kinds of backgrounds. We need to be free to choose for ourselves how to live. The only authentic life is for me to do what I want to do. And if I don't, I'm being fake. Forget your Christianity. It's fake. I feel that, as you can tell. Can see that? that that's certainly true some people can look at christianity as an ethical straitjacket. let me give you two responses to it number one you know deep down that there are ethics that everyone has to obey and if you don't know that you could never be morally outraged at other people you ever get mad at how other people live what if they're just doing themselves what if they're just doing them i do me you do you why are you mad at me i'm just living my authentic life you live your authentic christian life you can't be mad at people Unless you believe there's an outside standard. And secondly, secondly, guess what? You're always going to be a slave of what you truly enjoy. So I live for Jesus. You might live for your family. You might live for your job. You might live for sexual pleasure. You might live for money. You might live for popularity. But guess what? Whatever you live for, you're a slave of. The only authentic true life is to have Jesus as your master. He's the only one who dies for your sins and rises from the dead to forgive you and give you God. Your master won't do that. Your job won't do that. Your friends won't do that. Your girlfriend or boyfriend won't do that. They can't. And therefore, I'm calling you, lastly, drop, run, and focus. Focus on Jesus, who died for your sins, who rose from the dead. Trust in him and turn from your sins. That's the only true, authentic life of faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, take these many words cause Christians to be faithful to you in faith and cause non-Christians to trust in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.